Welcome to Worldwide Bible Class. Pastor Wolfmuller here, teaching on the life of Jacob according to Martin Luther. Let's begin with a prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray that by your Holy Spirit, we would rightly hear it, rejoice in it, that you would, with your word, give us comfort and wisdom. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, let's, let's share the screen here and take a look. We are in Genesis chapter 27, verse 40, well, 46 is probably where we're going to be. Genesis, uh, Genesis 27, 46. And we have the last part of the chapter here. This is where Jacob has received the blessing. And then uh, he, the, um, uh, he's exiled, basically. Uh, Esau is so enraged that he plots to kill Jacob, and, and he's going to kill his dad with it as well. Isaac would end up dying for mourning. And so, uh, and, and so Rebecca has this plot now to send them to send him away to his to her cousin brother, so she can he can also go get married and things like this. So, so uh, Rebecca goes to Isaac and and plots this way to get Jacob sent away. Uh, we ended last week by this wild insight from Luther talking about mortification. This is the mortification of the perception of the flesh, which is a really wild thing to say, because we normally talk about the mortification of the flesh, putting to death the flesh. But Luther's talking about the mortification of the perception of the flesh. In, in other words, it's not only... Um, maybe, maybe let's make this quick point here, uh, because I want to get on to what's going on there. But remember that we are um we normally think of the flesh in terms of the will what what do i do what are my actions uh and that's morality and that's important but also it we the flesh is what do i know this maybe is our reason or our thought our mind and it's not only the flesh is not only connected to our wants and our desires and our decisions, but the flesh, this fall, also affects what we know and how we know. So, so this is, in other words, this would be uh, uh, one of the philosophical terms. The, the will has to do with morality, that knowledge has to do with epistemology. How do I know something? And how do I know that something is true? And and so we have to we have to recognize that our that our sinful the fall also affects how we know what we know. Okay, but and I want to I want to keep going here. I don't want to get bogged down on that too much because because Luther is going to pick up on this as a as a theme, a profound theme. And he says that this example should be set before men's eyes. So what is the example that he's talking about here? The example is how Jacob is appointed king and priest, and he's given the rule and the priesthood. He's invested with the rule. He's invested with the priesthood. He's ordained. I mean, he's coronated and he's ordained. But he, he doesn't receive that kingdom. He's invested with his rule and priesthood, for such is the wretched pomp and ritual connected with anointing and investing this king. 
He is not clothed with a royal robe, nor adorned with a fillet or a royal crown. No scepter is put into his hands, but he's equipped with a bag and a staff and driven into exile. This is incredible. This is a... Uh, his, his coronation and ordination is a... Um, is nothing like a, the glory and pomp that you would expect this to be, but rather it's he's sent away. You know, here, here's your staff. No, it's a he, you get a walking stick. Here's your robe. No, you get a you get a backpack to throw your stuff in and run away. Someone says, "Sounds like Jesus." Just, you're getting ahead of the plot here, but that's going to come up. This blessing, however, is left to his brother Esau. So Esau, who the blessing is taken away from, stays there and sits on the throne. If you were to come into the house where they're living and say, uh, and say, who's in charge here? Just, just as here after Jacob is given the blessing, and then you come back two weeks later, and who's in the royal hall? Who's sitting on the throne? Who has all of the, of the power? Who is acting like the king? For 20 years or something, 14 years, it's Esau. Even though the the kingdom has been given to Jacob. Now Marlena says that she's here for the first time to study the chapter, and it's as great because her son asked her, "Why is Jacob blessed and God helps him, even though he's betrayed Esau?" Well, remember, and and this is great to kind of catch back up on the the way we normally read this account is that Jacob is a trickster and he's kind of plotting to steal from Esau. But remember two things. And, and Luther will emphasize both of these things. Very, very important. Number one, that Rebecca was given the promise at the beginning that the older will serve the younger. So that God had ordained it that Jacob would be king and Esau would serve him. The problem is that both Esau and also Isaac don't really like that. And they're arranging the whole time for Esau to remain king while Rebecca is trying to accomplish what the Lord had promised. The second thing is that Esau not only was didn't have the, according to the prophecy, didn't have the authority to be king, but then later he sold his birthright, which which is to say that he, um, uh, the thing that wasn't his, he then willingly gave up, <laughs> so that by these two things, the prophecy and the stealing of the birthright. The kingdom belonged to Jacob. And so Esau and also Isaac had gotten mixed up in that, was, was withholding it from him. So the trickery that Rebecca engages in, especially with Jacob, to have uh to have Jacob blessed as the king is putting things right. It's a it's a it's justice that has to be plotted out because there's so much injustice in the thing. And I think that's really helpful for us to go back to those two things, the promise and the selling of the birthright. That's what, he, that's what Hebrews does. And that's why the prophet says that Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated. It's not because like the Lord is deciding like which of these twins he likes better. No, that Jacob trusts the promise and Esau trusts his own strength. So that's, uh, so that's how that goes. Um, okay, good. Let's see. So. 
So the blessing is left to his brother Esau, to whom it did not by any means pertain, by promise, by selling the birthright, by the blessing of Isaac. Esau doesn't have any of these things. But finally, and here, here we go, but finally, and this is the but finally that we're all, all waiting for and praying for. But finally, after Jacob had been mortified through faith in the invisible God, this invisible is going to be very important. The visible blessing flows. The seed of Jacob takes possession of the land, and Christ is born from that seed. Christ, the eternal king and priest, whose kingdom and priesthood is contained in this blessing. So that we have the, uh, we have the promise given, but it's not seen. So the invisible God is working invisibly. And Luther's going to give some examples of this. First, he's going to start with David. David, you remember? Oh, okay. So, so let me back up. So uh, I, I made the point, I think, last week, and I, I want to kind of hone in on it again, that Luther reads these texts in terms of suffering. And, and this is his rule for becoming a, uh, for becoming a theologian. There's a, there's a really important place where Luther talks about this. Um, it's in his preface to his German works, and I pulled it up for, I pulled it up for us. So I'm in volume 34 of Luther's works. Uh, this, is the, this is the preface to his um, German writings. At the end of Luther's life, they, they published uh, an edition of his Latin writings, and they published an edi edition of his German writings. And he wrote prefaces to both of those. It's in the preface to the Latin writing that Luther tells the story of how he discovered the gospel. It's really great. It's in his preface to the German writings that he gives the rule for how to study theology. I want to point out to you a correct way of studying theology. Now, this little essay, we're not going to study the whole thing here, but I want to point a couple of things out to you. And th this has been maybe one of the most, mm, yeah, I, I think so that one of the most formative pieces of Luther that has really helped me. Uh, because this is not, look, we we can't just sit here and look what Luther says. We got to look how he sees the scripture and we got to go at it ourselves. It's, it's no good. It's no good to like try to hijack, you know, to ride along in Luther's back seat. Uh, because we, we also want to be students of the Lord's word ourselves. So how does he say to do it? Here, it says, uh, I want to point out to you a correct way of studying theology. I've, I've practiced in that. If you keep to it, you'll become so learned that you yourself could, if it were necessary, write books just as good as those of the fathers and councils, even as I've done. So how do you get there? How do you know how to be a theologian? And uh, of my life, I can by no means make the same boast. So Luther says, look, I've not lived a holy life like the church fathers but I've written some pretty good theology books. And how did I get there? How did I get to the theology? Uh, this is, King David teaches us how to get there. And doubtly, doubt, undoubtedly, doubtlessly, this is used by all the patriarchs and prophets. Uh, it's taught in the 119th Psalm. These, there, uh, there you will find these three rules amply presented throughout the whole Psalm. They are oratio, meditatio, tentatio. Oratio, 
is prayer. Meditatio is meditation. And tentatio is suffering, temptation, affliction, etc., etc. Now, here's one of the, the just, and again, the brilliance of this thing is that there was a rule like this in the monks. They had the rule of prayer, oratio. That's fine. In fact, they probably had meditatio first. So you have first prayer, and then you have meditation. Hmm. What is going on here? Uh, er, this is where I... I have to be careful. I'm, I've been practicing writing so that it doesn't keep like meditation. And then the third thing that they had was contemplatio. Contem. Oh, that should write P L. Contemplatio. This is contemplation. This is where we uh, we sit and we experience the the glory of God, the the heavenly uh, glory all coming down. Uh, uh, where we're we're lost in the in the in the exuberance of God's presence. Contemplatio. So prayer leads to meditation, which leads to contemplation. This is what happened to like Thomas Aquinas, who didn't finish his Summa, right? Because he was contemplating and he would, and he stood there by a vision in the presence of the glory of God. And he couldn't do anything except for be overcome by it and say nothing else. So that the idea here in the medieval world is that you're climbing this ladder, your, this, your theological action is the act of ascent to get to the radiant glory of God. You're, you're heading up Mount Sinai to be in the clouds. But look at how Luther reverses it. We have prayer, meditation, and then suffering. So the direction of theology is downward. Where I'm standing here uh, in this world, which is afflicted with the devil, and uh, and I have my own sins in my flesh, and I have the world itself, which is coming against me as a great enemy. I have neighbors around me, which are all sinners as well. And I'm in the midst of all of this affliction uh, and all of this trouble. And it's and it's there. It's there in the midst of this affliction that I become that I become a Christian, that I become a theologian. It's it's really quite something. So let's just pick up a couple of things uh, from Luther here. Uh, you see. David keeps praying in the above-mentioned psalm. Teach me, Lord. Instruct me. Show me. Many words like these. So we always begin our study with prayer. Secondly, you should meditate. That is not only in your heart, but also externally by actually repeating and comparing oral speech and literal words of the book. Rereading and rereading them with diligent attention and reflection so that you may see what the Holy Spirit means by them. So meditation for Luther is not an internal thing. It's an external thing. It's an oral thing. You should, as much as possible, dear friends, try to read the Bible out loud. It's weird for us because we do everything internally. We read internally and so forth. Um, as much as we can do externally is great. Uh, especially if you want a tip on this, hot tip for free, is to start with the Psalms. So to 
as you're reading the Bible, maybe you read a chapter of the Old Testament, chapter of the epistles, chapter of the gospel or something. You read that quietly, but then read the Psalm out loud. That's cool. Or if you're reading the gospels, read the words of Jesus out loud and, and practice hearing them. It's good. Uh, so you have prayer, meditation, and then here, the onfictum. Thirdly, there is tentatio, onfictum. It's hard. We, this is. It's hard to translate this. This is the touchstone which teaches you not only to know and understand, but also to experience how right, how true, how sweet, how lovely, how mighty, how comforting God's word is. Wisdom beyond all wisdom. Thus you see how David in the psalm mentioned, Psalm 119, complains so often about all kinds of enemies, arrogant princes or tyrants, false spirits, factions, whom he must tolerate because he meditates, that is, because he is occupied with God's word, as it has been said, in all manners of ways. For as soon as God's word takes root and grows in you, the devil will harry you. And will make a real doctor of you. And, he, and by his assaults, he'll seek you to teach you to seek God's word. I myself, if you'll permit me, mere mouse dirt to be mingled with pepper, <laughs> am deeply indebted to my papists that through the devil's raging, they have beaten, oppressed, and distressed me so much. That is to say, they have made a fairly good theologian of me, which I would not have become otherwise. And I heartily grant them what they have won in return for making me, uh, making this of me, honor, victory, and triumph, for that's the way they wanted it. So this is so these three things are what are what makes a theologian. And this is how Luther is reading the life of Jacob. That Jacob himself is praying, meditating on the word, and suffering. Someone asked me. I was at the seminary last week. Ooh, this was a good question. We were talking about, there's a guy working on a paper on Job. So we were talking about Job in the library. And um, he said, do you think Job is a Christ figure? And I said, no, I think Job is a Christian. In other words, he's suffering, not because his life is a type of Christ, but he's suffering because he believes in Jesus. And that's what happens when you believe in Jesus. You're handed over to this affliction. Okay. So back to Jacob. And looking at this pattern of suffering, let me see. Matt says, in Revelation, John portrays God's people as a struggling woman who is stalked by the devil and forced to flee into the desert. God's people have to contend with demonic onslaughts. At times, we may despair in the struggle, wondering whether God even remembers us yet. He unfailingly preserves us in our wilderness sojourn, richly and daily, providing everything we need through his spirit, word, and sacrament. Amen. Pastor Jernander says, um, Oh, yeah. This explanation of Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. In other words, which one trusted the word and which one trusted himself? If, look, if we, if, this is it, right? We, we think this Jacob I loved, Esau I hated is like, we, we, we read it like a Calvinist double predestination. Like God is, he's just, he's before the foundation of the world and he's got a deck of cards with everybody's name on it and he's just dealing randomly to heaven and hell. <laughs> and he's like, oh, Jacob, love. He goes in the love pile. And Esau, oh, you go in the hate pile. What? No. I mean, I, God, Jacob, he loved because Jacob, Esau, God hated because Esau exalted himself against the Lord's promise 
made himself an enemy of God and set at war to build his own kingdom against the kingdom of God. And for that, he makes himself into God's enemy and, and, and as an enemy of the promise has to be overthrown. Boy, boy, oh boy. Okay. Um, okay. Now this example, David was anointed king over Israel after Saul had been condemned and rejected by God. Remember that first, that's what the, uh, that's the whole business of, um, uh, of Samuel coming and anointing him and all this stuff. And, and remember he comes and he says, hey, don't you have any, don't you have any other brothers? Don't you have any other sons? Like, oh yeah, we got the little scrawny one in the field. You don't want him to be king. Yep. That's David. He's anointed king, uh, first Samuel, uh, 16, but in spite of all this, Saul remains in the rule bef as before and governs successfully at home and against his enemies. Indeed, he persecutes David himself in a cruel way as a deceitful man and one who's plotting against the kingdom. In the meantime, David, like a fugitive and an exile, wanders about in the land where he had been declared king by God. And not only that, he goes into he goes into Philistia, has to act like he's crazy, drools in his beard, lives in caves, and even. And this is an amazing thing. Maybe we'll do the life of David next in 50 years when we finish the life of Jacob. But how amazing that it seemed like the Lord had given Saul into David's hand. And David says, no, he remember he goes, Saul goes into the cave to, to relieve himself. And David is there close by <laughs> and he cuts off his robe and he goes out and he says, well, you know, look at, look at this. Uh, I'm not trying to kill you. I'm not plotting against you. It, I mean, how hard would it have been for David to say, well, obviously the Lord is giving Saul into my hands, but he, no, he, he honored the king, even though he was the king. He wanders about as a fugitive and an exile in the land where he had been declared king. How, how much does this sound like Paul in first Corinthians, where he says, all things are yours this life or the next life, that all things belong to the Christian. And yet we are still exiles in this world. History testifies that he wandered about in this manner for 10 years while Saul persecuted him, plotted against him every day. Surely to be in exile for 10 years in one's own land does not seem to be ruling. <laughs> These are two opposites for each other. What? What could be stranger, what more shameful than to, be clear, to, than to be declared king without a kingdom, without a scepter, without a fixed abode, to be bereft not only of the land and of the kingdom, but also of one's own home and wife and children. So David is the same. And now Jesus gets to the point that hmm, Susan made that Jesus is even more of an example of this. It's amazing. Christ's example goes beyond all this. Did he not, according to the prophet Isaiah 53, become the most despised and rejected of men when he wants to ascend into heaven and to enter, and to enter into his glory when he is about to overcome death, sin, and the devil, he is nailed to the cross. Dies is buried as the most rejected of all men and demons. This is not an entrance into glory 
for victory and a triumph over death, is it? This is what Jesus himself says. Now the Son of Man will be glorified. And then he goes to the cross. This is not a victory or triumph over death, is it? It surely is. For these are God's hidden ways, which must be understood, not according to the flesh and human understanding, but according to Scripture and according to Christ himself, who says to his disciples, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? This is on the road to Emmaus when he's talking to the disciples there. Now, this is, do you see how this is? This is God hidden. His hidden ways. What, and what are his hidden ways? To give the gift and then to, by all accounts, take away the gift. To give the gift to your ears and then remove it from your eyes. To give the gift by way of promise and then to make your life look like the gift is nowhere to be found. To enter into glory through suffering. And this is necessary according to the Lord's government, according to the Lord's rule. Together on this, we're clicking. This is amazing stuff. In the same manner, Jacob had to be in exile for 20 years and afterward at last become king and priest. David had to be driven hither and thither for 10 years and seek out the most varied byways where he might hide in safety for one night at times for one hour. He is not a king appointed and confirmed by God, is he? But yes, he is, but it doesn't look like it. And this is the point. Excuse me. If you went and you visited Israel at this point in Genesis 28, and someone said, who's the king? You'd say Esau. But according to the word, it's Jacob. Or if you went to Israel in the year 1015, and you said, who's king? You would say, Saul. But it's David who'd been anointed, even though he wouldn't take the king, the the throne for another five years. Or if you went to, here's the big one. If you went to Jerusalem on, on Good Friday, and you went to, and you were walking around Jerusalem and you came across the palace and and you and and there were two men and they were both in purple robes and they were both crowned Pilate and Jesus and you said who's the king here you would say Pilate in fact i think that's a test case to say that you know you you get to Jerusalem And there's Pilate in his crown of gold and Jesus in his crown of thorns. And there's Pilate in his royal robes. And there's Jesus in the robes of mockery. And there's Pilate who has the scepter. And there's Jesus who has a staff with which they've beaten him. And there's Pilate who has the respect of all the soldiers. And there's Jesus with the soldier spit dripping off of his beard. And you say, you got to follow one of them. Who are you going to follow? If we if we look on things according to our sight and our eyes, that that it's Esau, it's Saul, it's Pilate, 
but the Lord's king is established by his word. And, and that king, the, the entering into that kingdom is through suffering. Do you see? This is how it is in the church. This is how the Lord does things. You hear him praising the kingdom in a wonderful way. He sings Psalm 63. The king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall glory for the mouth of liars will be stopped. That is those who think that he is a king appointed and anointed by God will exult. But where are they? Now, this is, and this is really important because um, when we read all these kingdom hymns in the Psalms, we got to recognize that the Lord is working a hidden kingdom for a while. Now, we, we, it's hidden for a while before it's made manifest. Where are they? The whole kingdom and all the power were in Saul's hands. David himself did not even have a foot breath in the land. Thus, we who believe the word of God are the church. If you want to know who the church is, this is it. Uh, remember how we define the church? The church is all those who hear the words of Jesus and believe. Thus, we who believe the word of God are the church. We have a most certain promise into which we have been called and baptized and by which we are nourished and sustained. We have the sacrament of the altar. We have the power of the keys. This, this by the way, if you just like to do a little theology here. What's the, where do you find the church? You have the preaching the gospel. That's a call. You have baptism. You have the Lord's Supper. You have the absolution. Those are the ways that the church is recognized. But we are not Christians. Um, change color. But we are not Christians and have not been baptized in order that we may get possession of this land. Nor have we been baptized and born again into this life. Whew. We have been baptized and born again into eternal life. But what happens in regard to us, too? Surely this, that when the church must be glorified and brought, in, brought to those eternal joys which it awaits in the word and in hope, then it is subjected to countless persecutions of tyrants and devils. It is harassed and torn by false brethren in many most pitiable ways. This is not what being led to eternal life means, is it? Yes. It means being exposed to eternal misery. This is, this is the way that the Lord um, does his work. The, the path to eternal life is the Via Dolorosa. Hearts must be buoyed up and strengthened against this way of the cross. For we have the word and the promise. Therefore, the glory <clears throat> that has been promised is sure to follow. Meanwhile, the church lives and is preserved by faith, which concludes firmly that God does not lie. I remember, I wish I could find this. I, someone, if you're interested in searching on the Googles, there's an article some way that, somewhere where a guy is talking about the difference between Calvin's theology and Luther's theology. And he summarizes Luther's theology in this way. Luther says that God doesn't lie. 
that God is, that God doesn't, that God tells the truth and we simply believe what he says. And that's it. That's here. It says, concludes firmly that God does not lie. A son says, 2 Corinthians, as unknown yet well-known as dying and behold, we live. That's exactly right. Another comment came to me that says, the post-millennials want to push us all, all us Christians to build the kingdom now. It's one of the, it, there's an ascendancy in this sort of, and I think that's right. The post-millennials want that, that all the institutions should be Christian. We know that Christian wisdom informs how we live in this world, but it's important to remember that the world and the church are always going to be in opposition to one another. So kingdoms will fight against kingdoms and the church will preach the gospel and suffer for it. Jeanette says, okay, but Jacob and we suffer because of our sin, which God uses for his purpose to bless. Christ suffers for our sin. That's right. So, so our suffering is at least just, uh, or at least explainable because we've done things wrong. And yet, the suffering that Jesus does is completely alien. The sin that he bears is, it does not belong to him. That's exactly right. Um, Darryl, Darren says, uh, why does he say eternal misery? Paul says momentarily light affliction when compared with eternity with Christ. Yeah, I don't think that this eternal misery here, it should not be understood as like misery that goes on and on and on. But um, there's there's other places where where Luther will talk about uh, hell on this side of death, and that is the the affliction that comes from God's wrath. So the the uncertainty that creeps into our hearts, the the sorrow that kind of governs us. This is like a this is like eternal misery, but it's temporary. It's te it's not. So don't understand eternal here as like this misery goes on forever because the whole nature of it is that it ends quickly, but it tastes like it tastes like hell itself. I suppose like like the death of Jesus on the cross where we say he suffered hell, even though he suffered eternal misery on the cross, even though it didn't last eternal. Uh, Chip says, doesn't this point out how we need to pray fervently, Lord, help my unbelief each day, as we do not naturally choose suffering as the way to glory, to pick up our cross. We would run from it in terror, yet God equips us with the spirit of Jesus to grant us the gift of saying, not my will, but his be done. Even as our physical eyes and ears, all hell is breaking loose around us. Oh, that we can together say, Lord, take any comforts that I have in this life away that get in the way of me knowing you in your son. That's a great point, so that we we run from this suffering. Uh, the Lord gives us patience to endure the suffering, so we don't have to run towards it. The Lord will bring it to us. He he delivers affliction. He doesn't, you know, you don't need to even go to the mailbox and pick it up. He drops it on the doorstep. And now we pray that the Holy Spirit would help us to endure. It uh, and it that means faith. I'm back on the text now. This is Luther. It learns this wonderful wisdom, which is hidden from the flesh and reason, namely that God is wonderful in his saints and that his counsels are wonderful. This is also why our Lord and leader, 
Interesting. Jesus Christ has his name, and it is called Wonderful in Isaiah 9, verse 6. Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, etc., etc. So that Jesus is the, that this is all wonderful to us, which means both full of amazement and also full of glory. As he, let's see, Psalm 63, Psalm 68, I'm wondering what Luther's reading the morning. I wonder, I always wondered that in Luther's lecture, that the, the text that he was reading for the Mormon morning devotion come into play in his lectures. I think that's, he's probably reading through Psalm 60s and 63, 68 get mentioned. Hmm. Okay, now we're running out of time. I want to get, let me see. Oh, yeah, three paragraphs here. No, two paragraphs. So I want to get through this part here. Accordingly, this all points out that we should be instructed in order that if we want to live in a godly manner, we may establish a way of life that is different from the way to which the world and the flesh are accustomed. This is what Chip was talking about. The world wants ease. The flesh wants pleasure. We must depend simply on the invisible God. It, uh, the glory, the gl we want to see the glory, but the glory is hidden. And we must give thanks to God with joy that we have the word of God, which makes the promise. Concerning this word, Peter says, we have the prophetic word made more sure. Remember, this part was where Peter He's recounting how he was there on the Mount of Transfiguration and saw the Lord in glory. You will do well to pay attention to this as a lamp shining in a dark place. So we're living in a dark place, and the lamp that we have is the Word of God. That's it. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. I think that's talking about the resurrection. For the Word is the light of our life. Otherwise, we have nothing of the glory. Nothing of the glory. We have the, we have the humility and the suffering. Nothing of the glory. Not yet. We were born to live in the glory of the resurrection, like the glory of the stars. And yet, I know that I've been baptized. I know that I've eaten the body and blood of Christ, that I've been absolved, called, taught by the word of the gospel. I have nothing more of eternal life. This is something. I do not yet have a glorified body, which surpasses the splendor of the sun and the stars. No, I have a heart that's weighed down by many great evils and terrors. I carry around a body that is exposed to many infirmities and to death. Nothing is less apparent in the body as well as in the soul, than eternal life. <laughs> Did you get that? <laughs> I, you know, the promise will not deceive us, but we, we have all of these gifts by a promise, and it's not seen. We walk by faith and not by sight. Therefore, let us cling to and persist in faith and hope, and let us be content with the word which promises. In addition, we have this external life and fellowship. <clears throat> oh, yeah. External, not eternal. We have this external life and fellowship. We have parents, magistrates. We have the external ministry, the word, and the external goods that are necessary for this life. 
all this is a preparation and an approach, as it were, to the life to come. So we're not, we don't abandon the things of this life, this external life, because we were given the promise. No, we live in them in the expectation of the promise to come, which promise we have only by faith. This, look at this, is the proper and chief doctrine of the church. Now, I do, what I don't think, I was reading this and I was trying to think about this because Luther will say in other times that the chief doctrine is the doctrine of justification, the, the teaching on which the church stands or falls. So um, uh, I don't think this of is a possessive, but it's rather about. So we should understand it this way. So if you want to have the doctrine of the church, what, what happened here? If you want to know what the, if you want to know, what what's happening? A, B, let's try. This is the, um, if you want to know about the church, what is it? This is the proper and chief doctrine that describes the church, you see. So what is the church? The church is where we have the gospel. Uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh. And it's where we have baptism. And it's where we have the Lord's Supper. And it's where we have the Lord's uh, absolution. Uh, <clears throat> and it's where we have the cross, suffering. That's the church. It's been handed down by the Holy Spirit. The word and the flesh do not know it. It teaches that we are lords and heirs of eternal life in no other way than in the way that which Jacob was an heir of the blessing. When we he had obtained it, he was sent into exile from the land and the house of his father. For this is the way the divine majesty deals with his saints. This is the way. And this is the faith of the saints concerning which we have spoken up to this point. Now, now matters pertaining to morals follow, likewise the fruits of faith. So, so we see in the way that the Lord deals with Jacob, we see the way that the Lord deals with us too. Now, I think this is so helpful. Because this is not normally how the Christian life is taught, right? The Christian life is normally taught that you become a Christian, you receive the Holy Spirit, and you become a great overcomer. You become a great victor. You become a uh, you become triumph you triumph in the world every day of Friday. But the Scriptures teach something different: that the way of following Jesus is the way of the cross, the Via Dolorosa. We're all on the way of suffering. But it is how the Lord would have it. It's how he's arranged it. Because just as it was necessary for Christ to suffer before he entered into his glory, so through many tribulations, we come into the kingdom of God. That's the preaching in the book of Acts. And so this text and this preaching prepares us for it. Okay, that's a good spot to stop. So we'll pick up there with chapter 28 next week. We'll say a prayer, and then I'll shut off the recording, and then we'll talk about it. So let's pray. O Lord, comfort and strengthen us on the way of suffering. Grant us by faith to cling to your promises, to find our life and our hope in your promises, to walk by faith and not by sight, and bring us through the troubles of this life into the glory of the life to come. For we ask this all through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. All right. Let's see. Mm -hmm. Let me...